Well, my name is Jim, and I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God and following this program, best of my ability, and sometimes that's real good, and sometimes just barely doing it. I hadn't found it necessary to take a drink to either face life or escape it since February the 6th of 57. Um, thank you. I always get so nervous when I talk. I don't know if I'll ever get over it. In some ways, I hope I don't because I hope I never get to the point where what y'all think doesn't matter. You know, I might get sicker than I want to get if that happens. You know what I mean? So at any rate, I usually say that um, I'm going to keep talking until the higher power gets here, and I promise you he will. It may not be until the Lord's Prayer, but I'm going to keep talking until he gets there. And once he gets here, we're both going to hear something we probably want to hear, you know. Uh, I want to thank, I always feel a little in, insincere about thanking all of those that asked me to come uh, when I'm first starting out. After I'm through, I'm more than happy to thank <laughs> y'all, but, and it will be sincere then, but, but now just thank y'all very much. And, and this certainly has been a good conference. And, I've had a little something to do over the years with working in these conferences. I'm going to tell you it's a lot of work. And the only way that you'll ever know that is you do one of them, you know, and you'll find out, you know, it's a lot of work for them. And, and I always hated the people who would come up and tell you, oh, don't take it so serious. It'll all work out, you know. Well, it will if somebody does it. And I'm not... <clears throat> And especially if you happen to want to include this, this higher power. I always like to tell this story, but uh, it really did happen or not, and it kind of puts things in perspective about uh, speakers and, and people that are listening, hopefully. And it's, uh, when I was uh, new in the program, I knew that if I was ever going to really feel really part of this thing, I was going to have to get where I could talk in front of a group of people. That'd be more than myself, you know. And so one night uh, we had a meeting, a regular meeting in our group, which meant neither the chairman nor the speaker showed up. And so I had a chance to give a good AA talk. Now, <clears throat> I gave the best AA talk any of them had ever heard. Uh, the reason I say that is because three of them come up to me after the meeting and said, that was the best AA talk we've ever heard. So I got them off in the corner, and I wanted to give them maybe another hour or so of it. And, and so I asked them, I said, what, are, what was it, you know, that turned you on or whatever? I don't know what I said. But anyway, they started telling me things that I had never heard of in my life, I had never thought of my li in my life, and I certainly had not said them. <laughs> So what I, I, of course, I got real depressed because I finally made a good AA talk, and nobody heard one thing I'd said. So all the way home, I was getting more and more depressed, and it finally dawned on me something that I want to remind myself of, and I want to remind you of, that you're only going to hear what you think you hear and not what's being said. So if you don't hear the best talk you've ever heard in your own life, then it's your own damn fault. And, and, and I would suggest that maybe you get with your sponsor if you have one. Maybe you don't have one. You might want to read the big book. It will not hurt you. Um, I was saying something Pat had said and me that uh, people that speak at conferences are entertainers. Now, if my theory is correct, that means that I have been entertaining myself all this weekend because I have really enjoyed uh, the speakers, and I want to thank them also for sharing. Uh, I always like to say a few things uh, before I forget it because I might get caught up in uh, war stories or something and, and not tell you some of the important things that I want to say. And uh, one of the things, my wife is not here. She's busy in San Antonio right now. And, but we've been together now for 35 years. And uh, when we started going together, I told her that um, AA had to come first, you know, and that we wouldn't have a relationship if that didn't happen, 
and she has honored that all these years. Uh, really, a great deal, and so I'm very grateful to her. Another thing I like to say that these steps really do work, and these traditions really can teach us how to live with other human beings. Uh, one time, my dad called me in to fire me. In fact, it wasn't. It was next to the last time he fired me. And uh, <clears throat> but he uh, he told me something that has rang true all my life. And that is, he said, you're going to have to either work for yourself or by yourself because you just can't get along with people. You know, so these traditions have really shown me how to do that. And uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about those as, as this thing goes on. And the other idea of our third legacy, the idea of service, um, I, uh, I had to choose to... Uh, do service work in every way I can, working with others and helping with the grunt work. Uh, I'm I'm a worker, you know, and and I'm out of place up here just talking. I'd rather be working, you know what I mean? But at any rate, so I'm representing the blue collar AA <laughs> today. Uh, and I want to say that I have. Um, that if I give you the impression that some way or another that all the abundance and love in my life has come by some of my special doings, talents, or effort, I just want to say I apologize for misleading you because it's only been by the grace of God that this stuff has happened. When I came into the program, I like to say that I was bankrupt mentally, physically, emotionally, socially, financially. Uh, but I wasn't bankrupt spiritually because I didn't have an account at the time when I come in. Uh, <clears throat> I have a very active account today, and I uh, make uh, daily draws and deposits. You know, uh, I have uh, lived two totally different lives. I know some of us might believe in reincarnation, but it happened in, so far in this life that I uh, was certainly reborn uh, through this program. And what I'd like to tell you, some of the wisdom of our program tells us that we should say something about what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. And that's what I want to do. Um, that other life uh, ended, uh, this is for California, 15,136 days ago. Uh, <coughs> uh, I... Uh, it was in a cheap motel over on Broadway, and it would be equivalent like a $3 motel or something, you know, and uh, the parking lot looked more like a wrecking yard than a parking lot. And all the things that brought me to that motel that day, everything uh, is how I got there. And everything since then is what's brought me here. And I want to tell you a little bit about those two journeys. You know. uh, I hear a lot of people saying something spectacular about the first time they took a drink, and uh, that didn't happen to me. I mean, uh, we were stealing beer off of beer trucks and uh, going under a house and uh, uh, rolling cedar bark in a newspaper and, and smoking cedar bark and drinking beer. <clears throat> I don't know if you all ever smoke cedar bark in the newspaper, but if you puff it, it catches on fire, you know. So uh, I was more at risk with cedar bark that day than I was with beer. You know what I mean? uh, my dad loved racehorses, and uh, when the war started, the only way to make any uh, money, he was in the car business, and the only way to really make any money was uh, you'd have to black market in that, in that business, and he didn't care to do that. So we moved out in the country, and he started... Uh, raising racehorses and um, up to that time I would say that I was really passive uh, I didn't uh, I've always been real quiet but I didn't argue with anybody and I wouldn't fight with anybody uh, I would just you know just wouldn't do it um, so when we moved out in the country there was a beer joint down the road about a mile and there was no television in those days so uh, when the family go to bed, I'd go out the window and go down to the beer joint, and I started drinking beer regularly. No man 
that run that beer joint, he didn't have any indoor plumbing, so when he would go out to relieve himself, we would relieve him of his beer and wine, you know. If you did have money, you could buy two for a quarter, but a quarter was hard to get most days, you know. So at any rate, when I started uh, drinking every time I got a chance, and that was pretty regular. Uh, and what really amazes me, I, I was get off of them just never, It really amazed me. I never did care to drink with anybody, and yet that's how the really thing got going. Is I'd go to that beer joint uh, nearly every night and drink. And what happened to me is I had that personality change sufficient to bring about violence, not recovery. And what happened is everybody that I felt like had harmed me or wanted to hurt me, I started to hurt them. And I had a friend there at Beer uh, John. I usually only had one friend. I, I, I really loved animals and creatures a lot more than people. You, uh, animals a lot more direct. You know, you know what they're up to most of the time. But I had this one guy, and he was very good with a knife and uh, other instruments. And I found out, you know, I, I didn't weigh 100 pounds soaking wet, and, but I found out how to get people to respect you, you know. So I still didn't start talking ugly and, and uh, cussing and hollering, but I started hurting everybody that had hurt me. I had a brother, and I know y'all hear this a lot in AA meeting, but in my, in my family it was true. My family really did love my brother more than they loved me. And um, in all fairness, if you'd have known him, uh, you would have loved him more, too. You know? uh, he, um, he had one of those personalities that just people just loved to be around. And my dad and him were truly friends, not just fathers and sons. And I was always so jealous of that, I just couldn't hardly stand it. And he had been beaten up on me up into that time. And... Uh, he was 17 months older than I was, and so uh, I pretended it was an accident, but I stuck a hay hook through his leg, and then um, I started shooting because I, I got a, my 15th birthday, I got a, a shotgun for my birthday, and, and he was kicking my mare, and I told him not to, and so anyway, I lost my shotgun the first day I had it. I took it back <laughs> and... Uh, I heard him a couple of times, and he never bothered me anymore. You know, in fact, most people didn't bother me anymore. Uh, I had the strangest relationship with my family. Uh, when I was 17, I graduated from high school, but I couldn't read or write. You know, I couldn't spell anything, and I couldn't read, and uh, I couldn't find any kind of work. And the best my dad would offer me, had gone back in car business, was a porter. You know, and, and he was also. A, some of y'all might remember on the older cars they had wood grain on the garnish moldings and the dash, and that was going to be my career is put wood grain, and of course that went out of style somewhere. But anyway, um, I uh, I couldn't find anything, so I uh, forged my mom and dad, or got a guy that forged my mom and dad's signature uh, in the Marine Corps. And uh, this dealer that was next door, his name was Herbert Cochran, and he put George Arman real fancy and put the notary seal on there, and I took it down to the uh, Marine Corps, and they accepted me. And I went home, and I told my mom and dad, and I said, you know, they, they accepted the Marine Corps, because my mom said, if you can get in by yourself, because I was just 17, if you can get in by yourself, well, then go ahead, you know. So at any rate, when I told them I, they had accepted me, um, uh, she said, well, we aren't going to say anything back because we don't want to get you in trouble. Well, they wanted me out of town as bad as I did, you know. Um, I was in the Marine Corps about 30 minutes when I realized I'd made a very bad mistake. <laughs> the way it was before, if I didn't like something, I could run off, you know, and they wouldn't let me run off. It was just like, in those days, like prison for 14 weeks, you know, and you couldn't get nothing to drink, you couldn't get anything, you know. There was no such thing as liberty. But um, they made me a man. I, um, I gained 35 pounds in 14 weeks, and I really was hard as a rock, and man, I was, I had my dress blues, and I went home a Marine, you know. Uh, I think about sometimes, it comes up later, but <clears throat> my dad tried to hug me or kiss me goodbye or something, 
And I told him, you know, it's too late. You know, you should have thought of that before, you know. So at any rate, I had the Marine Corps now. Um, by the time I was 19, uh, I had already been hospitalized uh, for alcoholism, one direct and one indirect. Uh, the direct one was I started passing blood in the wrong places, and they put me in an old man's ward where most of them looked like I do now. And, <laughs> and the other, I say, was alcohol-related because uh, I had passed out in somebody's garage in the wintertime naked, and I caught... Uh, I caught double pneumonia, and I always said that was alcohol-related because I rarely ever laid down anybody's garage naked sober. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, it looked like um, that we was not uh, going to war with Russia or China, so uh, they wanted to cut back service, so they offered to let you get out on early discharge, and if you sign the inactive reserve for life. You know. So I signed and I got out, and I was out um, three months, and Korea started. You know. So they called me back. I got a wonderful telegram from Truman. Uh, I've lied about it so much, I made it sound like they needed me, you know. But it was probably something like report to Camp Joseph H. Penalty on a certain, certain day. So uh, I was kidding my sister, and I told her, I said, you know, I'm not going to have enough money to drink or anything I, I think I'll just marry your girlfriend you know and uh, well I didn't like her but you know we kind of she didn't particularly like me either but she's wanting to get out of town and so uh, but at any rate my sister slapped me and told me not to do it so I married her and that should have gave me some indication that I might have this disease you know in fact just to get off that just a minute I, I've been thinking about uh, you know how alcoholics hate to be told they have to do something or can't do something. So what I'm thinking about doing is telling everybody that you are forbidden until you have five years of continuous sobriety to read the big book. No. Forbidden. And it has to be certified by an old timer, you know, before you can pick it up and read it. You know what I mean? Can't you see them just making a line outside the CSO and, you know, just, you could probably sell them $50 a copy. <laughs> They'd be studying them, too. It wouldn't just be breathing them or anything. You'd have to invest like that. You know what I mean? But at any rate, uh, I went, uh, got all trained up, and Marine Corps had a way of getting you to want to do something. You know, I just couldn't hardly wait to get on the ship and go to Korea. And we got over there, and uh, my mother... Uh, knew I didn't particularly care for this lady either and so she was trying to get her to divorce me so when I came back I would you know kind of be free to come and go and uh, but at any rate uh, she told my mother she wasn't going to divorce me because she knew I was going to get killed and she wanted the insurance money <laughs> so uh, apparently there's some truth in that because I changed beneficiaries and she divorced me you know? <laughs> um, I was thinking about that I uh, they called me down to Division CP, and they had a chaplain, and they had a uh, legal officer, and I thought something had happened to my mom or dad or something, you know, and they told me that she had filed for a divorce, and if I wanted, I could get a 30-day emergency leave, but I would have to come back, and I chose to stay there. Now, I don't know if I was that offended by marriage, or what I really think was is I have a terrible thing that I've suffered from most of my life is if I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it or it bothers me too much, you know. So I think I would have felt so horrible if I would have went home and, uh, and the rest of everybody else stand there, you know. So at any rate, I came back a hero. I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps and, you know, you could just walk down the street and people treated you. It wasn't like the Vietnam War. I always kind of felt sorry for them guys because uh, a war is a war and everybody you know but we were treated like heroes and um, now the Marine Corps didn't know I was a hero but the family did now my family were not religious but we could make one another feel as guilty as any religious people I've ever seen uh, and um, I made them feel very guilty that I was over saving them their lives and the country and everything <laughs> while they were making money so my brother and my dad told me that if I would come work for them for a year, 
that at the end of the year we would divide everything uh, in third. And the way I repaid that kindness is, is sometimes I'd go to work as early as 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, sometimes I stayed as late as 3. There was, um, there was days when I didn't even insult a customer. I didn't produce anything, but I didn't hurt anybody or anything some days, you know. Uh, what happened is um, I started having that physical problem again, and I started drinking. Uh, uh, I mean, I went to this doctor, and he told me if I didn't stop drinking, he was going to put me in the hospital. And, and the, I'm, the things I am mentioning, by the way, all of these were very important turning points, and they have a very special meaning to me is what I'd like to share with you. And what happened was that I just quit drinking. I did not have one withdrawal problem. I didn't have any problem at all. I just quit. And not only that, I got good. And I, I married another lady. I told her everything she needed to know. I told her about my potential, what I was, <laughs> what I had coming in a short time. And uh, my dad called me in in the 11th month before we split everything and fired me. And that's when he told me that message. So I went down Broadway and I had $400 and you know, either a 38 Packer or a 38 Dodge. And, and I went down, this old man uh, didn't really want to work. And I got a dealer's license and uh, I'd sell his car for no commission. He wouldn't charge me a lot fee uh, to sell mine. And uh, I become then a workaholic. You know, what I've done is I've switched uh, from alcohol, and I see that over and over and over again. You know, I, if you don't switch to some other addiction, you'll be walking around with an untreated illness, you know. So at any rate, I worked seven days a week from daylight to dark. Uh, I, uh, I started being successful. You know, I, the kind of old cars I was uh, patching up and selling, uh, nobody wanted to finance them, so I started financing myself, and I started a little finance company. And within a, uh, about a year and a half, uh, I was doing very well. And this brother that I was always so jealous of, uh, he was also a compulsive gambler. He had lost everything he had, and so he wanted to. He came down and wanted to borrow some money from me. Now, I don't know if that do anything for you, but it did for me. And I gave him what I like to call a pre-Alamon talk. Now, you don't know what that means, Miss, that I, I, um, I really made him feel guilty and didn't give him anything. You know what I mean? But, and I want you all, I did say pre-Alamon. I've had people criticize the way I say that sometimes. But at any rate, uh, when he left, I got really thirsty. And I got to thinking, I have not had anything to drink in a year and a half, and this has to be a celebration. So there was a couple other guys there on the lot, and so we um, uh, started drinking, and I was drunk then for three years. I don't know when I passed that invisible line that was talking about uh, yesterday, but I know that I had passed it for sure the last year that I drank, because with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, I would promise again and again and again, I will not drink. I don't care what happens. I don't care if you'll just let me back in the bedroom. I'll never drink again. You know what I mean? And so I don't know how many times I quit that. And this doctor that ended up playing such a vital role in my life, uh, he was our family doctor. And every time there was something come out about uh, drunks, nobody called us alcoholics. I and mean, that was such a beautiful word, but call you drunk, you know. And everything he heard about, well, he heard about this new antabuse, and it had a narcotic in it. Now, uh, like was mentioned yesterday, I just never, I'm so grateful. I never got into any drugs because I, I think I can get addicted on distilled water, you know. <laughs> but at any rate, um, he put on the um, bottle, uh, take when necessary for nervousness. Well, I'm nervous all the time if you're going to not drink, you know. And you take a teaspoon of it and put it in a glass of water and stir it up. So 
us three, the other two guys had started drinking again. We decided we'd sober up together, so we was all taking this antabuse. In those days, you just go to a drugstore and sign refillers many times if you want to. So we just going down, and I was taking about a bottle of it a day instead of a teaspoon. At about five days, I wanted to go back to the drug of my choice. Now, everything was blue and hazy, and I was two or three feet off the ground and that sort of thing. But it wasn't the kind of feeling that I really wanted, you know. So at any rate, um, I knew that this doctor had never been right about anything yet. In fact, I used to do things to him that most doctors don't like. I would call him a quack and not pay him, you know. And so my theory was this, that I, the Broadway bowling alley was directly across the street from my lot. And in those days, there wasn't any freeways, and Broadway was the main thoroughfare out of town. And I waited till about 5 o'clock, about as long as I could wait for my experiment. And what I was going to do is get a bottle of beer and turn it up and drink it as quick as you could. If you drink beer fast, it won't hurt you. Everybody knows that. You know, it, it, it tricks it somewhere or another. And, and, and beer does not have hardly any alcohol in it at all. Everybody knows that because it takes so much to get a buzz on. So obviously uh, this was not going to hurt, but I thought I'd test it. So I went in the bowl and I got a bottle of beer and I turned it up. And I don't know how much I got down. It wasn't much. And I broke and run for that door and I went into convulsions and I went physically blind. It just everything was just a haze. I couldn't see anything. And I got down on my knees and crawled across Broadway at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And they was blowing horns and cussing and screaming. But, you know, I had to get across the street and get somebody to call that quack and tell him what he's done to me. He's, he's, he's nearly killed me, you know what I mean? So I, uh, my wife heard about it, my then wife, and uh, she took the dishes or whatever we had left and left again. And uh, so I went to my sister to what all, of, all alcoholics deserve and need. Uh, when we're active and that is some sympathy so I went to my sister's house and and what had happened is when when I would drink it's like I would break out from high with hives all the way from the top of my head off even my my little toe had a hive on it you know and I'd break out in these whelps and everything and my heart would start pounding so I got some beer and I took my shirt off and I said Mary I want you to look at this you know and so I drank it and my heart started pounding she said you're going to die, and I don't want you dying in front of my children and get out of the house. Now, that's not the way to treat <laughs> So we tried all of those things that people talk about trying, and, and nothing. I, I could quit for a day or two, and then I would start feeling uncomfortable or start seeing or hearing things or one thing or another because I wasn't physically taking care of myself at all. And so I drank my medicine to stop that stuff and stop that noise and stop that feeling, whatever. Dr. Nixon, he told me, he said, he called me one day and he said, I don't want you to ever call me again for anything unless you are really ready to stop drinking. Never. You know, I don't want you in my office. I don't want you to ever call. But if you really get ready, I've got something that will work. But don't don't call me unless you mean business. What had happened, I didn't know. There was a guy come in from California, uh, come in over to the club, and uh, he was on a visit, um, and he got flu or something while he was here, and he went to Dr. Nixon, and he was telling Dr. Nixon he couldn't take any kind of, he was an alcoholic, and he had to be careful what he took. And so Dr. Nixon told him that he had a drunk, that wasn't staying sober, and so Doctor, uh, this guy, I don't even know his name, you know, I call him a, a big book angel, so, and what he did is he lent um, Dr. Nixon his big book and, uh, and talked to him about AA. So that was the reason that Dr. Nixon had called me. Well, on that morning at that motel, um, I remembered that because the most horrible thing uh, I think can happen to an alcoholic is not be able to pass out when you want to. You know, I had graduated to pints. You know, I'm going to buy one pint. That's it. 
and then of course maybe half pint some days, and then of course go get another one and another one. And, but when I wanted to pass out, things got a little too bad. Uh, I'd buy a fifth and I had my pint, and I would go run away again, you know. And I'd done that that night, and I'd set up all night long drinking, and I couldn't pass out. And the more I drank, the clearer my mind seemed to get, and the more frightened. I didn't know it was fear then, but those four hideous horsemen was galloping around that room, I guarantee you. Uh, you know, I was selfish and self-centered, and I was driven by a hundred forms of self-delusion. I had stepped on some people's toes, and they were retaliating, you know. So I remembered what he had said, and I went and called him, and he wasn't there. And his nurse uh, said, you know, he's not there. And I said, well, uh, I'll call him tomorrow. And she said, no. He said, if you ever call, then I know what to do with you. Now, that was a direct result of him reading that big book. He knew by then, and talking to that guy, if I ever said now, it either had to be now because tomorrow, you know, I wouldn't probably feel as bad. Maybe my wife would come back or whatever the deal was. But so at any rate, they got me a room at the St. Benedict's nursing home. There's only two places in San Antonio in those days that would take you, uh, knowing you was an alcoholic. And then even then, they, they put on a uh, nervous breakdown. You know. And everybody around me was having nervous breakdown. But and so I guess I guess that was accurate, you know. But at any rate. Um, a couple of days, I don't really don't know how long, but they gave us peraldehyde. I don't know if anybody's been around peraldehyde or, or people taking it, but you, sw you smell like a wet chicken, you know. <laughs> and we had people that was on a peraldehyde maintenance program like some people do now with marijuana, you know. And they didn't know, how do you know what I'm taking? Well, you could smell them, you know, as soon as they walked in the building, you could smell them, you know. But at any rate, um, and they came maybe a couple of days and... He left his big book, and um, my then wife began to read the big book. And I hear this often again, how when someone first read the big book, they had this divine revelation and everything was going on. There was two things that stood out. One was that whenever she'd gone through the steps, you know, I'd say, I can do that, I can do that. No problem, I'll do that. You know? But when we got to the fifth step, I said, I ain't never doing that. You know, I said, I see how this thing works now is you tell somebody everything you've been doing, and then they'll blackmail you and stand sober. And I'm not. <laughs> I was so nervous when that guy got there. I said, I ain't going to do that deal, you know. He said, oh, don't worry about that. Just All you got to worry about now is the first step. He said, you don't even ever have to take the fifth step. You don't want to, you know. I'm glad he told me that. I'm glad he didn't say you'll probably kill yourself or somebody else you don't. But, you know, at the time, that was good news, you know what I mean? But then we got to the next thing, and it was the chapter to wives. And it said in there that some of the wives, something like this, some of the wives have had retaliatory love affairs. Huh. I said, they even know in this book what you're doing. <laughs> and I won't know who it is. And we'll get it straight once and for all. We'll never have this problem again. You know what I mean? I had a little problem with jealousy. It's very rare amongst alcoholics to have that. But I had, had that. I like to tell this example because it'll give you a, a good idea about him, you know, that guy. Um, one, one night when I was still drinking, I had promised not to keep any alcohol in the house, so I put it in the garage, you know. And so uh, the cabinet for the glasses wherever I would sink and looking out the backyard, and so I went to get a glass, and I look out, and this guy is signaling my wife, kind of with a Mars code. He'd, like, turn the light two longs and a short, two shorts and a long, you know. So I got my pistol, and I, my plan was, was to do everything he was going to do, and then he'd come on over, and I'd shoot him as a burglar. So I wiggled that light for an eternity, you know. I knew he was tired anyway, so... I slipped over in his backyard. I was going to shoot him and just drag him over there, you know. And so I got in his backyard, and there's a wind blowing the light back and forth, you know. <clears throat> Boy, that was the closest I ever come to catching him, I'll tell you that. I laid all kinds of traps for him. Never could catch him. 
you know how I knew something was going on for sure, and a lot of y'all would recognize this, but one day we was out, my wife and I was out in the backyard, and he walked by and says, how are you? And he didn't look at her. You know what that means. You know. He knew if I saw him looking at her that I'd know what they were doing. So, so anyway, I, he couldn't trick me. I knew it. Anyway. I don't remember that it was um, three or four days or whatever, and they checked me out and took me to my first AA meeting. And I'm so grateful they didn't say, is there anybody here for their first meeting? I mean, I was so goosey about being a recruit, you know what I mean? It's like I had in my mind, if y'all knew I was new, all of them would be pointing at you, everyone, everybody get him, get him. You know, again, you know, they'd run and try to sell you something or, you know, what I would have done. So at any rate, uh, after that meeting, they took me over to the club, which is group 12, and that's been my home group ever since. In fact, if y'all would like to come to our 49th uh, club anniversary, it was seven and a half years old when I got there. We're going to have it next month, and it's uh, August the 14th, 15th, and 16th. So be welcome to come. Uh, but at any rate, I met a guy there named Ted, and Ted talked in a language that I could understand. And I started laughing. I mean, I don't as mentioned yesterday. I, I don't remember ever laughing with sense sense of joy that I did, you know. And when this guy was taking me back, uh, this big book, Angel, was taking me back to the uh, hospital that night and hadn't fully released me. You know? I couldn't stop laughing. He said, you know, he said, you may be a honeymooner. And I said, well, what's a honeymooner? He says, you may be one of those that never has to drink again. I said, wait till my family hears this. I've been telling them, I've been telling them for a long time I had what it took. You know what I mean? Uh, the first day I got our uh, um, the drying out, uh, I went to my office and found out another horrible thing. I found out it was broke, you know. And uh, that's bad when you're trying to sober. It wasn't too bad when he was drinking, you know, because you could kind of move things around and things like that. But So what I would do, I'd just jump in the car and I'd run down to the um, club and I'd sit there for a while and, you know, get, get a little courage and go back to the office and sit there. I would literally hide sometimes when a customer would come in so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody, you know. And So uh, there was a lady there that made uh, sandwiches. Her name was B. And um, I, I was a pretty good listener even then. And B told me all of her problems. And B had ulcers. So I caught those ulcers from listening to B. You know? <laughs> um, so I went to see uh, Dr. Nixon. He wasn't there, but his dad was. I don't know if he's ever there, come to think. <laughs> but anyway, his dad was there. He was a retired doctor. And he said, come on in here. And he said, maybe I can help you. And, and uh, he, he asked me what his problem, so I gave him all of these symptoms, you know. And he said, aren't you that boy that uh, said my name? This is anonymous problem. He said, aren't you that boy that joined AA? And I said, yes, sir, I sure am, about six months ago. He said, well, why don't you start living that program? You'll do away with that nervous stomach. <laughs> you know, I won't push him out of that one. This is bad. <laughs> <laughs> But I was what was called in those days a two-stepper. You know, I was heavy into the first part of the first step and, and into the second part of the twelfth step. You know, I was, uh, there's been rumors that we might be carrying more of the illness than the message. But uh, in those days, everybody had to do twelve-step work. It, it didn't really matter uh, whether you had one day. That was more than somebody's coming in. You just didn't do it by yourself. You know what I mean? And you could sit there and babysit them. Uh, uh, the group with the Club 12 then, we had a, a motel right there. We could rent a motel for $4 a day and, and go babysit them through drying out and whatever, you know. And I don't know if we killed them or not the way we medicated them, you know. Some question about that. But at any rate, um, it was a great place. Um, I went to this one guy and, um, and I told him, I said, if I don't do something about this jealousy, you know, I'm going to kill somebody or, or, you know, get drunk or something. I said, what do we do? Now, this was Mr. A.A. He had about eight years. He said, I don't know. I'm having the same problem. 
I said, God Almighty, I said, I'll tell you one thing. So I went around and told them, everybody, you know, when I get eight years, I promise you I won't have that problem, you know. Well, I might tell you what happened at seven later, but anyway. Um, I went down uh, I went down to the coast. There's something about that coast. I went down there to commit suicide, to tell you the truth. I, I, I would go for days sometimes, and I couldn't think of anything else. And uh, I went down there, and that was what I was intending to do. And um, I was going to hit the races bridge, and I got to think, where my luck's going, I'll just break my leg or something, you know. So at any rate, I got down there, and I watched that water for a while. And there was a peace that came over me. And I come back to town, and I started looking at these steps and this program. If you would ask me, are you working the steps? I oh, we have a step meeting every Wednesday. You know, of course I'm working the steps, you know. But when I started getting, I really was walking around uh, with an untreated illness. Uh, my sponsor then was teaching me how to read. And of course, he's teaching the AA literature, like the big book. And then uh, Father John Doe, Father Falvin, uh, Sobriety and Beyond, and some of those things. And there was one, uh, The Sermon on the Mound by Emmett Fox, that had a lot to do with uh, early AAs uh, trying to find a power greater than themselves. Because the people that impressed me in this program was ones that said that they had found some kind of power, of some kind of higher power. And that's what I really wanted. I wanted, I could see peace in them. And I'm going to tell you, uh, it kind of sounds contradictory, but I wouldn't mind killing somebody for a little peace. You know, it's just like I would get that feeling sometimes, you know. So at any rate, I was, uh, um, I was still in the car business then, um, and I was going through what I like to call the AA over honesty. Now, what that is is somebody would come in uh, to the lot and they'd say, do you have a nice car that I could buy? And I said, no, I sure don't. <laughs> I got this piece of iron over here that I really need to sell, and I'm broke. And you know, it's like, I guess I was asking for charity or something. I'm not sure, but uh, uh, sales were down. Uh, 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 and but I had a lot of time to study, you know. And that's what I was doing. And uh, it got a little bad financially there. It looked like they was going to repossess everything. I hadn't uh, paid anybody in about three months on the house and three months on the car lot. I had a three-month deal going, it looked like. And so I thought this would be a good time to find out if this higher power worked. You know? And I am so grateful that I wasn't a spiritual giant in those days. You know because I wanted to ask for what I needed. And right now, I needed some money before they repossessed everything. So I gave God three days to get all these financial... <clears throat> you know, it does sound arrogant, but at the time, I'd read he'd raised his son from dead in three days. You ought to be able to take care of a few little financial <laughs> problems, you know, if, if he really helped a person like me, you know what I mean? So at any rate, I went over to the club that night, and I told a guy, I said, you know, I know in all my heart for the first time I had surrendered this stuff to God, and I promised to stay out of the way for the next three days. You know, he thought that was good. He couldn't stay out of the way for three minutes. So I, three days, pretty good while, you know. Next morning, I went back to my office, and there was no money on the desk or anything. Um, but I had given my word, and so... And, boy, I tell you, that negativity was just all day long. And I'd, I'd run the bathroom and turn it back over to God. I don't know what they thought was the matter with me on that day. But in three days, all of those things were taken care of in a way that I knew it was not me doing it. And it changed my whole life because I realized it had nothing to do with me deserving it. It had nothing to do with me doing it right. What it had to do is with all my heart, I was willing to trust God for those three days, and, and he did that. I liked the way he did it so much, I decided to retire, you know. Um, I just, they, no use fighting this business, just letting have the whole thing, you know. The problem was, is I had not really cleared away the wreckage of my past. I hadn't really done anything on and clearing up all that stuff, and within a few months, I was back again uh, broke. There was one tremendous difference. Ever since then, no matter how bleak anything would look, I know one thing for sure. There is a power 
that will do for me what I cannot do for myself. It was not a theory. I knew it to be true. And so uh, one night uh, I had a dream. And in that dream, what my then wife was doing, uh, I kicked her out on the floor for her, you know. And I told her that I wasn't going to live with anybody sorry she was. Uh, I don't know if y'all have had those just absolutely cannot separate reality from that, you know. And it was one of those kind of dreams. So I wanted to do the AA thing. So I went to the kitchen, made a pot of coffee, and was smoking a pack of cigarettes. And then I was going to leave her, you know, and want to jump into it. But I also did something I found AAs tend to do from time to time, is I rehearsed that dream over and over again. And when it would stop hurting a little bit, I'd add something to it, you know. And at least two or three lifetimes had gone by before I realized that it was a dream and I couldn't stop hating her. And I had not been able to say that I was insane, never, in AA, because insane to me. My family was one of the options, what are we going to do with Jim when I was drinking? One was a state hospital as a regular nut. My mother wanted to believe that I went nuts in Korea, you know, and that was all the matter. She did not want me to be a drunk, you know. So at any rate, uh, that would have been better than anything, just to be nuts, you know. And that night, I knew I was crazy, and I had another turning point there, and I said, if there is a God, then you're going to have to give me some kind of understanding because I can't stop hating her, and I know it's a dream. And I had a realization that she was me in the dream. There was enough in it to know I had been the one. I'd been trying a little controlled adultery, you know. <laughs> uh, it tells us in the big book, you know, if you question your drinking, you know, go step across the street and have some drinks and see how it works. Well, I was going to step across the street and see how that other worked, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it didn't work. You know, I, uh, I, I listen to Fifth Steps constantly, and I mean, there are some sexual athletes around. I mean, I was, I was, I was nothing compared to that. I, I mean, I couldn't get by with anything. I get so guilty, it nearly kill me, you know what I mean? So, but, but at any rate, what happened is, is the next morning, I went down to see, we had a priest in AA, and I, I wasn't Catholic, but I, it was a double whammy, see? It's like he couldn't tell anybody because he's a priest, and he couldn't tell anybody because he's an AA member. So I took my fifth step, what I call my fifth step. You know, it was those secrets, I swear to God, nobody will ever know. And I left there with a tremendous release when I walked out of there, just like a lot of us know. You know. <laughs> um, not long after I got drunk, and I told everybody my fifth step was so horrible that he had to get drunk over it, you know. <laughs> and when he came back in, I told him what I'd been telling everybody. He, he, he couldn't remember what I told him. I thought it was pretty sensational, you know. <laughs> but I fooled myself because some patterns I had seen that night, um, man, there was two things that had caused so much violence in my life. And I see those two things over and over and over again in people that I've shared with. I have never found anyone different in this. We absolutely have to experience love in our life. We have to. Now, we may call it many different things, you know, or whatever, but we have to experience it. And the other is, is our life has to mean, mean something. And when anything uh, is contrary to that, we're going to have trouble with others, you know. So at any rate, I had seen that, that that night, and I didn't tell him about it. I had to go for a number of years before I'd actually even share it with anybody else, you know. There's a great many things that goes on in these meetings, I think, that we don't know. There was three things that happened to me uh, fairly early in the program that caused everything to go upside down that I wanted to mention. But one was is I was sitting there one day, and I realized I was an alcoholic. I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. You know what I mean? I would do anything to get the heat off. You know, like, and, and I'd go to meetings, you know, because I knew my wife had spies. And what would happen is, is they'd tell her that I wasn't saying I was an alcoholic. So I, I'd tell anybody I was an alcoholic. You know, I didn't 
I never even heard the word before. You know what I mean? And one day, because what I heard other people saying they had experienced over and over again, I'd say, if that's true, then I'm an alcoholic too. You know? The other thing was, is my family, as mentioned yesterday, my family, we wasn't allowed to have any fear or show any fear. You know, uh, my whole family was somewhat aggressive. Uh, my mother, when I was in Korea, uh, she sent me the album of the gunfighters, a book with all the famous gunfighters. Give you an idea of what she had in mind. You know. <clears throat> so what I kept hearing was fear and anger, you know, is the same thing. And here I am walking around angry. People would say, why do you have a chip on your shoulder? If that's true, that fear and anger are the same thing, then that means that I'm walking around fearful all the time, and that was pretty hard to take, you know what I mean? And the other thing that like got me was it wasn't other people, it was me. That was so difficult for me to accept because always before I could blame somebody. You know, I could figure out some way to prove that it wasn't me. You know, the important problem with that is that there's not going to be any choice or healing for us as long as we're blaming other people or even if we stay blaming on ourselves too much I, I was trying to see my uh, we saw Will Rogers moral here and I was saying there was a quote I heard the other day said Will Rogers said something like even if you're on the right track and if you stay there too long you get run over you know and it's like if I stayed in that program at the same place I was I was going to get run over I don't know if any of y'all have done that. I know you've certainly seen it, but uh, it, it's something like this. Like uh, one day I was sitting in my office and uh, the world was not running correctly and I was having some problems. I mean, I was having real problems. It wasn't some Mickey Mouse stuff. It's real problems. So I went over to the club and I was going to tell them what my problems was, you know. And I sat there for a few minutes, and I started hearing some real problems. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, all of a sudden, I've got a tremendous sense of gratitude that my problems wasn't real problems. Theirs were real problems, you know, and I didn't have them, you know what I mean? And I got that tremendous sense of gratitude, you know. And I walked out of there once again with an untreated illness. Now, what I'm saying is, is all the thinking, all the type of stuff that was going on in my life was untreated, you know. Uh, I had not practiced these principles in these areas where I was having uh, that problem. There's a, uh, there was a sign in a dentist's office, only floss those teeth you want to keep, you know. Uh, well, I'm thinking about putting a sign in my office, only apply these steps to the programs, you, uh, to the things and areas you want to be joyous, happy, and free in, you know what I mean. But at any rate, that's what I'd found over and over again, that I would reach a certain level in this program, and then, well, one very critical time, and I, I think it has something to do with that part in the big book where it says there comes a time when no human power can keep us from drinking or whatever, and I like to also add to keep us from going nuts, you know. And what happened is, is I had reached a, a part in the program, and I see it over and over again, uh, with old-timers. There's one thing that's happening also with old-timers. Um, there's more of them starting to uh, seek help for themselves and in a way of reapplying their steps, you know. I mean, you can get a few years of sobriety and uh, not reapply these steps over and over again because so many of us have hypnotized ourselves or thought that if I just do these steps one time, it's going to be a generic deal and everything's going to be well, you know. But what I saw happen was that uh, just like it did before I quit, came into the program, everything quit working, you know. I mean, the meetings I was going to, I wasn't feeling anything. You know, I was going. Now, there's one thing that I have done when I got out of the Marine Corps, if nothing else, is discipline. You know, and I'll go to meetings, I'll do the basic things that I'm feeling not. Whether I believe them or not, I'm going to pray, I'm going to meditate. I don't care if you can't find God with a search warrant. I'm going to turn in that direction because whenever something does break, I want to be in that direction. But what I'm saying, and some of y'all I know have experienced this, that what happens is, just like it did, if alcohol, for instance, would have kept working, I doubt if many of us would be sitting here today. You know, well, life sometimes stops working at the place we're at, you know. 
And it can be pretty scary if you try to keep that to yourself, you know. And when you start opening up and being willing to share that, what happens is it's the same process we need to begin and, and do them again. So at any rate, uh, you know, I could pray and I didn't feel like there was any contact. I was going to meetings. I was working with others. All the uh, big book or anything else was not doing anything. I felt like my prayers were just phonies. And so what I would do is I would increase my activities in all those areas and nothing and during those times nothing happened nothing changed do more 12-step work I go to more meetings and nothing nothing happened so uh, what happened i saw finally is it's the same process that a lot of us have to do we have to stop fighting everybody and everything and start surrendering once again this high power and that's what i did you know and i just say because i think this is where suicides happen i think this is where extramarital affairs happen. I think this is when slips happen. Uh, all kinds of violence and stuff happen. And the reason for it, I believe, is that we get so damn intent on reapplying the same thing that worked yesterday. You know, I say sometimes, you know, you were not supposed to eat yesterday's bread. It'll give you indigestion and a closed mind, you know. But what happened is, is I have to be willing to say, I don't know what this is. I, I can't fight or argue with it. Now, by turning and being willing to turn over to the high power doesn't mean it's going to happen, you know. But if I'm willing to turn again and again and again, then one day, maybe short time, maybe long time, it breaks. And when it breaks, everything starts working again. I'll never forget. And whatever you got on your mind seems like that gets you credit, you know. And I happen to be saying the serenity prayer one time when it broke, and I couldn't, every meeting I went to, you know what the Trinity Prayer is really saying? You know, well, I said it ten times today. Yes, I know it. No, but I mean, do you really know what it said? You know what I mean? It was the same words, you know, but it was different. Um, briefly, what happened when I was uh, sober seven years, I was laying my hands on people and healing them. I was, uh, I mean, I thought it was, you know, I think it was God doing it, but I was willing to whip them all out there, you know. I was doing a lot of 12-step work, and I had a beautiful program. Uh, Kathy and I had begun to live together, and uh, we was having a beautiful life, and business was good. AA was good. Uh, I've been very fortunate in business. I've always been in a position to either in management or owning it where I could work with alcoholics. So I would work with alcoholics there at the office, and it was really going great. My ex-wife called me um, and told me that she was going to remarry. And I didn't want anything to do it. I didn't want to talk to her. But I didn't want anybody else marrying her. You know what I mean? Uh, so uh, I had two sons, and uh, I told her, I said, well, you need to tell that guy we need to talk, you know. So if you'll... So he called me and he said, I understand we need to talk. And I said, we do. And when I got the most violent in my life, uh, you would never know it because I would turn cold stone cold. I mean, I wouldn't raise my voice, but I would hurt someone, you know. So at any rate, I decided I was going to have to kill him. And so... When he called and I told him, he said, well, I'll come on down to your office. And so this friend of mine, which was my big spiritual buddy, in fact, I love him so much, he passed away now. But he did something for me that we hear from time to time, and that is he was the first person that saw any good in me. You know, and he didn't tell me that directly because I figured he'd want to borrow some money or something. But he would tell everybody else, you know, how well I was doing the program and I was really getting that spiritual contact. So of all the people in the world, I would not want him to know this was going on because it was just like another human being sitting over here watching this stuff going. I'm serious. I, I really did. My program was going great except one area. I absolutely could not stand the idea to think that somebody might actually be sleeping with her. Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure it probably would happen. If, now, maybe not in modern marriages, but in, if you're going to get married, that probably was going to happen, you know. And so, anyway, I told Bill, I said, tell him to come up to the storage lot and I need to talk to him in privacy. So, I'd quit carrying a pocket knife because I had a bad habit of placing it in the wrong places. And uh, I don't have a pistol anymore. I had a 
and stuff those in anybody's mouth for a long time. So I, I got a lug wrench and I was going to get him up between the cars and kill him. <laughs> so I waited about two hours and he don't show. You know, he's another insight I had about him. I didn't know he was coming from Houston driving. I, I didn't know he was from Houston. I thought he was San Antonio. But anyway, uh, about two more hours later, here he comes. And when I found out who he was, I pulled him in the office and started beating him. And I beat him until I was so tired I couldn't beat him anymore, and I was kicking him. And I started choking him, and I wasn't strong enough choking death. And I asked my buddy, Bill, I said, would you open your pocket knife and drop it on the floor? I said, I'm just not able to kill him. And I'm telling you, you know, they took him to the hospital and just breathed him up a little bit. I'm telling you, I went in such a depression that I couldn't stand myself. I said, everything you've been doing is a lie. You know, everything is a lie, you know. So I went in for about six months, and once again, that habit of not uh, stopping anything, I increased my meetings. And we started a group we called the Canterbury Group, which was mainly to try to find a higher power, because I really needed a new contact with the higher power, because I felt so absolutely horrible, you know. So the thing that since then I had never taken my program for granted, nor have I ever taken my sanity for granted. Uh, nothing like that has ever even come close to happening, but I don't know if something could be there. I, if you would ask me the day before, would you hurt anything? Absolutely not. I mean, people that know me, I, I can catch cockroaches and take them outside, but I don't, I don't kill them, you know, uh, which I'll tell you a story about how things get in the program. and. Um, I had an office in Canberra, and it had corner windows. It was in a corner lot, uh, office. It was about 45 foot long or something like that. And uh, there was a wasp that got in there one day, and it was on the computer. So what I would do is, they, they, it wasn't uncommon, and they'd land on a window. You know, you'd take, put a cup over them and take them outside. So uh, I, I decided, if you're not going to eat anything, don't kill it, in other words. So I'm not going to eat wasps. You know, might sting you. So I went back to the closet, which was the other end of the closet, and I got a cup out, and I was keeping my eye on that wash, and it took off and flew into the cup. Now, I am at peace with all the world. Even God's creatures love me, you know what I mean? And I, I took that bird outside, and I had to go to a meeting. And I knew that day that meeting was going to be on wasps flying into a cup. <laughs> you know how you can get a feeling about what the subject's going to be? You know? So I, I, you know, I didn't want to be pretentious and jump right in. You know, I wanted to, but I thought, you know, just wait the timing, wait for the timing. You know, while I was waiting for the timing, uh, this person started taking somebody else's inventory. And it went on and on. You know, I had something important to talk about, and they, they was taking somebody else's inventory. And I finally said, hey, wait a minute. We don't take other people's inventory in AA. I mean, like I'm doing you. We don't do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I think, what happened to that loving person that loved the universe, loved, loved God, loved fellow man, loved creatures, you know, what happened to it? Now you're angry because somebody's not doing the program right, you know what I mean? So what I saw once again, I have these, what I call them, pockets of separation. I'll find where I'm just not including God. It's these little pockets of separation. Uh, so what happens is it gives me a, another chance uh, to reapply these programs over and over again. Um, after I was, my mother, like I said, never did want, want to believe I was an alcoholic. And uh, she was a very stout woman, and she got cancer, and uh, she was uh, on the way of dying. And she she didn't she wanted us kids. They weren't both my mom and dad. They died nine days apart. Uh, they both wanted to die at home. They didn't want to go to a hospital nursing home, you know. And so what she'd do is she'd accuse the nurses of stealing or something like that, you know, so you run them off, you know, and then we'd have to take turns. 
there was, there was five of us in and had to take turns uh, taking care of her, you know. And so it was my turn that night, and uh, so uh, I just got in. I'm still working the thing, and, and I got in bed and I was just holding her, and she had went down with she just her just bones. It's all that's left, and I started praying to myself and saying, God, please let her pass. You know, I mean, the most humiliating thing for her that's possible, you know. And, she looked at me and she said, you just did something to me, didn't you? You know, and I told her that I just asked God to let her pass. So she called my sister in and she says, now listen, I want you to listen to Jim because he's got something here. You know? And what I had there is what I'd been having for a long time, and they didn't know it at my house, at my mom and dad's, you know, is I had found a power that would do for me what I couldn't do for myself, and I was willing to include that power in every dealing that I've done, you know what I mean? So at any rate, um, I continue to be very active in this program. Um, I uh, retired from a business, uh, active business, about 17 years ago. And I uh, keep an office, I was saying earlier, I keep it for a couple of reasons. One is I, I want to keep my wife, you know, it's all right to have breakfast and dinner, but don't have lunch at home, you know, it's like, that's too much of each other, you know what I mean? But it gives me a chance to visit with people in AA. Uh, we have workshops and we have meetings in, in that office. And it's such a way of life for me, you know, and it is such a beautiful way of life. Um, I was asked one time, uh, what would you do different if you had to do it all over again? And I would suggest it to you. I would ask more of God more of this program and more of myself sooner. Thank you.